If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Thank you. Well, this is the debate Matter and Mind. I'm Joanna Cavena, and the basic premise of the debate is that neuroscience has enabled us to posit theories about how the brain affects the body, but there's still no prevailing theory to explain how the matter of the brain affects or creates even thought and experience. So the key question within the debate is, is consciousness inexplicable at present because it is not part of the material world? Um, or is it somehow physical and within the grasp of those scientists who are trying to track it and trace it? Um, or indeed, if these notions of the material versus the immaterial, or mind versus matter, are obsolete and need to be revised. Um, and here to discuss this, we have a very distinguished panel. Um, I shall introduce Marcus first. Marcus Gabriel is a philosopher and author of Transcendental Ontology and also Why the World Does Not Exist. And he's director at the International Centre for Philosophy at Bonn. He's Germany's youngest ever chair in philosophy, um, and he teaches philosophy in nine languages. Then we have Ray Brassier here. But I don't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes, you know, invented languages don't count. But <laughs> Ray Brassier is the philosopher at the American University of Beirut, and he's author of Nihil Unbound. He's also translated works by Alan Badu and Quentin Meyer-Sou, and he's one of the pioneers of speculative realism. And I'm sure he'll explain, if you would like, what that is. And Eva Yablonka here at the end is Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at Tel Aviv. She's a theoretical biologist. Her books include Evolution in Four Dimensions, which she wrote with Marianne Lamb, and she's best known for her work in epigenetic inheritance. So the format of the debate is that the speakers have four minutes only to answer a question I shall pose them shortly. Then we'll have a theme debate in three rough parts, and then I'll turn it over to you, the audience. So the opening question, which I'll turn to Marcus first for an answer, is, is consciousness inexplicable because it is not part of the material world? Thanks, Marcus. 
so I think that um, the question how mind fits into nature or how mind relates to matter in the way that we are used to asking it right now is completely ill-posed on, on many different fronts. So let me begin, you know, for saying something about, you know, the book title, Why the World Does Not Exist. What I'm denying is the metaphysical principle of the unity of reality. So for one thing, I believe, it's philosophically misguided to believe that there's one big entity or domain, the world, and that we have to fit everything into that domain, which would be defined, for instance, as the absolute totality of everything which exists. And then you could start debating about, you know, what really exists, does mind really exist, does, does matter really exist, etc. If that's the way of approaching the topic, then you're already misguided because you make way too many metaphysical assumptions that I think are ultimately untenable. So first of all, I think we have to overcome metaphysics and therefore also questions such as, you know, should we be dualist? That is, should we believe that there are two kinds of substances? Should we be monist? That is, believe that there's just one substance? Should we be pluralist? That is, believe uh, that there are whatever, many substances, okay? So I think the early modern debates that are still with us uh, and that have posed the problem of consciousness the way that we're still discussing it, I think those those debates are as misguided as early modern physics. So uh, all of this is misguided. We need a new framework in order to ask the question. Nevertheless, there are versions of the question uh, that are with us that are tenable, but you have to rephrase the premises of the debate or so, I believe. So let's look, for instance, at, the, at notions like mind and consciousness and self-consciousness, etc. What's remarkable if you come from a different, you know, like non-English-speaking community, such as a German-speaking community, is how surprising it is, you know, like we have no German word for what in English is called mind. You cannot translate mind into English as much as you cannot translate the German word Geist into English, okay? They're not exact synonyms. So I, I, I have a hard time even understanding what people <laughs> mean when they ask, you know, mind and matter. You know, mind for me is like schmeind, you know? So you have to give me, you have to give it <laughs> meaning. And when I look at, you know, the meaning that people are trying to give it, you know, then philosophers at least will tell you something like, you know, if you want to know what mind is, you got to find the mark of the mental. What's the mark of the mental? Well, the mark of the mental is what makes something mental instead of non-mental. Well, that's of course not very helpful because mental is just Latin for mind, so that doesn't <laughs> really get us anywhere. Um, so what they then say, and that is still the most hopeful way of even making sense of the question, I think, is they say something like, yeah, forget about mind, let's talk about consciousness. And then things get uh, really tricky because I think that consciousness might also mean all sorts of things. Some things that we call consciousness, I think, are of course biological phenomena, such as being awake, you know. The fact that I'm awa awake right now and not, you know, so drunk that I can't even engage in a debate. Well, those facts, I'm not on LSD, I'm, uh, for all I know, uh, you know, like those facts um, are biological, obviously. So there's no, I don't think there's a mind-matter problem there. First of all, we can explain them etc. So I don't believe that there's what people have called the heart problem. I don't think that there, you know, you can look at my brain and then it looks stupid and just pink and, uh, but from within, you know, I'm awake, so how do they, s they relate to each other? Well, here's how they relate to each other. You know, if your brain is a certain state, in a certain state, then you're awake. So that, that, that's, I think, is not a problem. But there are problems with consciousness, such as, you know, like, how can I ever be in a truth app state? I think that's an interesting question. So how can brains have access to truth app states, even though brains, you know, do not seem particularly suited to, you know, due to their evolutionary origin, etc., to grasping, you know, as it were, pure truths, such as two plus two equals four, etc. So uh, how is it possible that uh, brains, you know, uh, realize states that make it possible for us to significantly go beyond 
anything that takes place within our heads. So, you know, to, to throw out another credo, you know, the external is credo, but a little bit more generalized, I think that, you know, parts of consciousness just ain't in the head. So if you're looking for consciousness, you know, within your skull, then you will find some elements of what we legitimately call consciousness, and they are not mysterious. But you will also find, you know, other features that we ascribe to consciousness, such as, you know, those features that put us in contact with something outside our skull. So for me, the real interesting question is, uh, how is it possible for, you know, uh, organisms to uh, uh, grasp uh, propositions. I think that's an interesting question that comes with all sorts of riddles, but the riddles are quite different from those that, uh, you know, the metaphysical framework is allowed uh, to pose within which we are currently operating. I think that framework is profoundly confused. Well, my answer to the question would be straightforwardly no. Um, and I think that there's um, the terms, I also I agree with much of what Marcus said, that the, the question is badly posed or badly framed. There's a, there's a fundamental confusion uh, which underlies the premises uh, uh, of the question. I think the fundamental distinction uh, to get going on this problem is, to, is between, to understand the difference between knowing what we mean when we use the word consciousness and knowing what consciousness is. There's a fundamental difference between knowing what something means and knowing what something is. We human beings knew what water meant long before they understood what water truly is, its microphysical structure. The presumption that we are better acquainted with our own minds than anything else, which is, for instance, the, the fundamental Cartesian assumption, is, I think, you know, predicated on this confusion. Uh, there's this assumption that we are directly acquainted with the constitutive properties of our own mental states or conscious experiences, uh, and that this somehow, um, this our familiarity with our own minds means that uh, we're in a position to say what they are and what distinguishes them from other any other natural phenomenon. Um, the arguments, there's been a revival of dualism in recent Anglo-American philosophy, um, the arguments for dualism, such as the famous explanatory gap argument, as formulated by David Chalmers in 1996 in his Conscious Mind, it seems to me that they all proceed from the, uh, the assumption, in terms of this conflation between knowing what something means and knowing what something is. Chalmers begins with the, the premise that we are directly acquainted with the so-called phenomenal properties of our conscious states, and then concludes that these properties, um, which are intrinsic qualities of our experience, are fundamentally different in kind from the types of properties catalogued by physical science. That is, physical science can tell us about the functional or relational properties of, of entities, but never about their intrinsic or non-relational features. And the claim is, that the, the explanatory gap argument proceeds from the claim that because we are directly acquainted with the qualities of our mental states, we know something about what it is to be conscious, um, which is unlike any other phenomenon in the universe. This is why, accordingly, you can only, uh, our, the subjectivity, the, the constitutive subjectivity of conscious experience rules out any 
third person or objectivizing uh, understanding of the phenomenon. Um, now, the problem with this this argument, this you know, uh, argument for dualism, is that it's uh, one. It draws a metaphysical conclusion on the basis of, I think, semantic premises that are at least dubious or can be called into question, and it draws an, an extremely strong conclusion. It, it says that um, because of because we can conceive of creatures who are um, physically or s and functionally indiscernible from ourselves, but that would lack the qualities of conscious experience. This means that there is a difference between consciousness, what consciousness is, and the, the other kind of uh, properties that constitute um, other physical systems. Um, now, I think this argument has to be resisted um, basically because I, I deny the, uh, you know, the, the acquaintance argument, the claim that we have direct, unmedi unmediated knowledge uh, of our own mental states. Also, there's, uh, Chalmers distinguishes between what he calls the, uh, the two aspects of the mind, the experiential aspect of the mind, which is consciousness proper, and the psychological, which is the cognitive information processing aspects. Um, this this argument hinges on being able to secure the claim about our direct acquaintance with the phenomenal qualities of our own conscious states. And here, I think if you think about this, I've, I'm, I've never been quite able to understand what people mean by phenomenal quality. I understand what it means for this table before me to have certain phenomenal qualities. It's you know, rectangular, it's, it's got certain colors, uh, odors, textures, okay? Um, and I th but I think that these properties are transplanted from physical objects to allegedly experiential states. So I think that's, that, that's my fundamental objection. Finally, I want to agree with Marcus that one can resist the claim that consciousness is some other kind of thing, kind of resists explication, without saying, without committing oneself to the claim that um, Physical science, as, as it currently exists, possesses all the resources it needs to be able to kind of to understand the mind. Well, uh, you have to understand my background. I'm a biologist, I'm an evolutionary biologist, and I'm thinking like one. So, as a biologist, for me, consciousness is part of the living world, of the biological world. That's and the biological world is part of what we call the material world. The material world is a very complicated thing. Right, but uh, it is part of the and but the biological world is a subset of the material world, which is super complicated. It is complicated in ways which are very, very different. Biology is different. Living things, the study of living things, is very different from the study of other things. They are very organized. Living things are organized in a very, very special way, and this leads me to something that in which I somewhat differ. From you, for example, you say that the, for, for you, the really interesting and first question is how is it that creatures, biological creatures, can make evaluations of, of tr truth and falsity? Something, a proposition is true or it is false. I think it's a very, very, very important question, and it is a question that is related to the question of how is it that rationality is at all possible in the biological world, 
among living creatures. I think th this question has a lot to do with the evolution of language and symbolic systems, how this come about during evolution, what this gives us, and through this, we can understand, and the understanding of what a symbolic system is. It's, an, uh, it's, a, it's a system which we construct. It is a system with enormous power, and, but it is a system that is basically based on the biological abilities of a particular type of, uh, type of creature, the us. Uh, humans. For me, the question, uh, 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 a question for me that is very, very intriguing, and here I slightly disagree with you, is the question of how is it that creatures feel? How is it that we have experiences in the first place? How is it that we see a red poppy and we, uh, we taste a banana, that we, are af uh, that we have, that we're afraid? Things like that. Why is it that we not only respond and process information, but have this kind of feelings? And not only us, other animals as well. So for me, it is a very big question that Chalmers is posing. I disagree with his solution totally. Right? I don't disagree with his... Uh, uh, but I think it is a very good and very important question. And here I would like... And so the, the approach that I take is, I say there are three things, as I see it, three great kinds of organization that we recognize in the living world. One is life itself, the living organization, which has very special properties. It is a system which, is, which we are beginning to understand partly through an evolutionary approach, but it is not just like any other uh, complex chemical system. It is organized in a very special way, and it is this special way of organization that leads to the particular, particular properties of living organisms. Living organisms, I'm talking about bacteria, I'm talking about dogs, I'm talking about also humans and plants. So this is the first thing. The second is, how is it that among some of the living creatures, animals with nervous systems, something like consciousness appeared? What, how did it happen? When did it happen in evolution? Did it happen once? Did it happen many times? Uh, or several times, what are the conditions? And I have, and my, uh, uh, my assumption is that this consciousness system, this biological system which we call consciousness, have very, very special and unique properties which we have to understand and that we can understand them. I am a, a scientist and scientists are both skeptical and optimists because if we were not optimists, we'd just give up and do something else. So I believe that we can understand it, and I think that the evolutionary route for understanding it, uh, understanding how this originated, what happened, what were the, 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 uh, the conditions that made it possible, can help us greatly in understanding it. The debate, theme one. So, I mean, we've obviously got a difference in disciplines on the panel, a difference in this use of the word consciousness. Ray is saying that using the word doesn't remotely mean you know what the thing is. Ava is arguing for particular scientific approaches that will embellish this and, as she said, solve it. And, I mean, Marcus has a basic fundamental scepticism about the word itself as a useful term. So, I mean, why don't we turn to this business of the word, what it is, what we're even demarcating. Marcus, why don't you respond, embellish on your idea that actually fundamentally this is a game with words, essentially. Yeah, I mean, um, 
at least you know many philosophers draw something like the following distinction they draw it in so many different ways you know and then it's detailed blah blah but you know let let me make it simple so many philosophers say something like that at least we need to distinguish two kinds of consciousness phenomenal consciousness you know feelings and so on and so forth and then there are different construals you know some people think that having a headache is exactly like seeing the color blue and here i agree with ray that's confused but you know uh, uh, but so phenomenal consciousness would be whatever feeling the question is what belongs to this category, you know, just a headache or a sexual desire or the color blue, whatever, but it's one category. The other is intentional consciousness, and intentional consciousness is, you know, the fact that uh, we have states that are about something, so intentionality here just means aboutness, and uh, they must not be confused, be, you know, like if you think that phenomenal consciousness is actually like intentional consciousness, then, you know, like as uh, one philosopher has once asked me, you know, what is an orgasm about? You know, like, so, <laughs> <laughs> so what are you thinking about makes sense, but, you know, but what is your orgasm about doesn't make sense, you know, or what is your, uh, et cetera. So, I mean, even though some feelings will have aboutness, but, you know, you see there are different, uh, these are at least two things that we need to distinguish. But then I also think that, you know, we call consciousness something that is not just, not just biological, you know, like being awake or having uh, pains uh, or, or seeing that a car is parked in front of one, but, you know, what we call consciousness has also, uh, there's also a relation to what we call history, you know, so uh, uh, consciousness has a certain history, and I think that this is also often neglected in the contemporary debate. So when people say, you know, mind and matter, they forget consciousness. That's remarkable. Uh, Marx called the view that, you know, like how does mind uh, geist fit into nature? He, you know, this has been called in the DDR petty bourgeois materialism. <laughs> it's petty <laughs> bourgeois, you know, uh, because it, it just forgets that uh, consciousness has a history. I think that's a third, uh, you know, concept that we need to have in the picture. And once you have these concepts, I think then the, the apparently singular phenomenon of mind and consciousness, you know, dissolves under your fingers. And, and, uh, and, and, uh, but then it also becomes tractable. So I believe that many of the things that Eva think are, you know, ca can be explained biologically, indeed can be explained biologically, but that uh, this doesn't mean that we explain consciousness biologically, <laughs> okay. you know, because that's yep. a confused term. Exactly, yes. I'm going to bring you both in. Ray, I mean, you have a slightly different, you posited this idea that there's a disagreement or a difference between the word itself and whatever it is potentially describing. Do you want to respond to Marcus and um, expand on that? Yes, uh, well, I think there's a, um, in terms of this distinction between, you know, the intentional or, uh, inte you know, the intentional aspects of the mind and the, uh, the experiential or phenomenal or however you want to characterize them. The question is how you articulate them. I think there's a, some philosophers traditionally take consciousness, by which they mean phenomenal consciousness or experiential consciousness, to be primary, and they claim that intentional, the intentional aspects of the mind or sapience depend upon uh, consciousness. You, you explain the mental, the psychological, in terms of <coughs> the experiential. You need to be conscious in order to be able to think about anything. Other philosophers think that, no, you have to be able to you explain intentionality, okay, because you, you, can, you can gain, you can make kind of headway with intentionality be because it's conceptually tractable. Whereas consciousness itself is very difficult to decompose uh, in terms of uh, conceptual analysis. Because often th the claim is that, well, this claim keeps re-emerging, the claim that we, we know it because we have it. So, and you know, there's Ned Block, an American philosopher once said, you know, if I need to tell you what consciousness is, you, you know, 
you don't, you, know, you don't have it or you don't understand, you're missing it, which is amusing but not very helpful. Um, so th I think that's a, f a fundamental schism in contemporary philosophy, you know, either consciousness first or intentionality first. Uh, secondly, I agree completely with uh, Eva about that I think that to un to re if we're going to understand consciousness, biology is the key. Because, you know, I think consciousness or, you know, is obviously linked. The kind of full-blooded consciousness we have seems to be a kind of an elaboration of the kind of sentience that is fairly common in the, uh, the biological realm. Um, and that obviously has a, has a history, has a kind of... So I think that the problem with uh, you know, making headway on, the, on this, specifically on the issue of consciousness, is being able to articulate the fact that consciousness as a biological phenomenon has a, an evolutionary history, but also as a human consciousness obviously has a cultural history. Yeah, okay, Ava, do you want to come in on the evolutionary understanding? Yeah, I mean, you know, this I, I, think, uh, I think evolution has been extremely useful for uh, the understanding of the, pro of the problem of life, which, as I said, is, has deep analogies with the problem of consciousness, because in both cases you are talking about the emergence during uh, history of uh, something uh, of, uh, of a goal-directed system. The goal-directed in the case of uh, life is uh, survival and reproduction, and in the, in the case of what we call consciousness, which is, I agree, a very, very problematic term, is uh, that creatures, uh, that animals have desires which they want to fulfill. They have telloi in this sense. So, and there are many other co uh, communalities between these systems. So they are very, very unique kind of systems. And we began to understand life because, we were, uh, because people took an evolutionary approach and started to ask, well, life must be some kind of organization, very dynamic and very special organization of, bio of, chem of complex chemical reactions. What kind of chemical reactions? How did these chemical reactions come to be in the world? In under what conditions is it possible? And, and so on. And they when they started thinking in these terms, a lot of the mystery and the, the confusion, the conceptual confusion of, of the term life disappeared. And I think something very similar should be done with, uh, with consciousness. I, uh, I think that if we understand how, how it came about that animals with nervous systems started to began to feel things <laughs> and to respond to have this kind of categories, sensory motor categories which are holistic and that which we call feelings, if we understand this kind of things, I think, I think we'll understand, I, I, I think that it will bring us closer to understanding what we mean actually when we say the word consciousness. And then, then we can also, and once we understand this, then we can understand also maybe better how is it that some creatures that have this already in place, this kind of, uh, of, uh, of w desires and emotions and, and feelings about things, can also think in the way that human beings think and say this is, this, is, this is true and this is not true. I think, again, in this case, the solution would be to try and understand how this type of system, which is again a new teleological system, rationality, is giving us new telloi. We strive for the good, for the just, for freedom, for, for all this, for beauty. These are abstract values that we construct through our symbolic system, but we strive for them. And this, and this is new. So what, is, what makes it possible? And here I think we have to think about, the as I said uh, earlier, about the evolution of language. This was and your point I think three. this will was be, this yes, point three you were yes okay, this, so is yeah. this is the key. 
I think. It's not the only key, but it's a, it's a very important key. Okay. So essentially, I mean, if the, two, the two attributes you've given are this, this notion of feeling and this notion of rationality. The These are, are the major attributes yeah, of consciousness yeah, that you're yeah. seeking to explore. Yeah. Yes, but I'm thinking mainly yeah. about the first one. Yeah. Right, yeah. yes, yeah. okay. Yeah. Do you want to come back on that before we yeah, go I to think, the Yeah, I think that's, you know, I think that's a version of, you know, like phenomenal and intentional consciousness. Yes. So, you know, like there seem to be at least two features. You know, like I'm, but I'm, you know, like I'm currently working out a view that I call, you know, mentalistic pluralism, uh, and that just highlights, you know, I look also at the history of how history, not biology, of how the terms involved, evolved, you know. If you look at self-descriptions of human beings, you know, uh, consciousness, mind, etc., come fairly late in the history, you know. Uh, the, so, the, the, so if you go back, you know, through the Middle Ages or uh, ancient Greek tragedy, you know, these things have been investigated by many philosophers, then you will notice that, uh, uh, you know, other cultures in the past and uh, the, the distant past, but also in distant locations, self-describe in different ways. So th uh, you already have to have a certain historical background in order to come up with the idea that uh, what you have to e explain is how you know animals can have certain capacities. Even though I totally agree that, ob uh, like I think it's almost obvious uh, but often forgotten that of course you know how animals can do certain things must be a question for biology because it's the discipline that studies animals. So uh, and I think that a lot of what we call consciousness is indeed just a biological phenomenon, and it doesn't surprise me. So I don't think it's you know, like, I wonder how someone could deny this. Like, you know, um, uh, of course, you know, some of the things that we do and perceive are species relative, you know. For instance, the kinds of objects that are salient for us are picked out, of course, by the kind of nervous system that characterizes these, you know, the, an the ants that we are, you know, crawling on this, you know, whatever shitty potato flying around in nothingness. So that's, uh, I think, uh, th I take that for granted. Um, nevertheless, there's something, you know, like in history, I think we, we achieve something, namely, you know, a malleable, historically malleable, uh, pluralistic, mentalistic, irreducible vocabulary. And I think that, you know, literature can tell us often more about that vocabulary than any other science could. You know, like I've learned more about self-consciousness from Proust than from Darwin, you know. I've learned more about, you know, I would even say that you can learn more about sex from the Bible than from Darwin. <laughs> However, you can more... Uh, but you can learn you cannot learn anything about the evolution of species from the bible <laughs> so you know uh, uh, but that doesn't mean that now you have to choose you know either either you know have a uh, solomonic sex or you know the, uh, the Darwinian reproduction. <laughs> so th uh, that's I think that you know the term we need even more terms. Yes. Uh, so not just yeah. the two phenomenal and intentional, and then see how we can relate them. You know, like I, I even want more terms on the table, and then see where we're going. And I think that the terms that Eva is claiming are biological. Those aspects of what we call consciousness, I think, are indeed biological. And uh, this has often been overlooked by philosophers who committed uh, my favorite fallacy in the history of philosophy. We are rational animals, therefore we are not animals. The most <laughs> widespread fallacy among philosophers. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. 
It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Theme 2 if we turn to the next, we're, all, we're already in it, actually, this idea of matter. Um, what is materialism when, we talk, when people talk about this problem within this discipline of if you have a, material, a materialist brain, then how can it produce this immaterial thing? And Ray, I mean, I wanted to ask you more about this because, in a way, I mean, you've talked about psychological and sensory forms of consciousness. And we've heard now we've got a kind of biological word coming up as well versus, you know, more sort of ideal idealistic notions in philosophy. I mean, so this theory, are you distinguishing these as two facets or how do they relate to this idea of mind versus matter or the physical versus the non-physical? Um, well, I think, I mean, I think the term materialism at this by this stage has become completely know, degraded in Great. Meaning Can we remove it altogether? Well, Good. no, okay. no, well, actually, no. Yes, why don't you, yeah, Because it's, uh, although it's, you know, it's, um, for instance, like, no contemporary, I don't think that contemporary scientists are materialists in the way in which people in the 18th century took themselves to be materialists because no one believes that the world can be broken down into kind of indivisible chunks of matter, of stuff. So, Substance, you know, substance-based materialism, I think, is no longer a view. Not even physicists don't believe that. And in fact, what's remarkable is that matter, as material substance, has been pulverized by physical science. Um, so whatever, you know, whatever physics tells us about the structure of space and time, it's got nothing to do with kind of uh, lumps of stuff bumping into one another. Um, so, I think I prefer the term naturalism in, in the sense of uh, I think that the attempt to understand the mind uh, in a way should be constrained, should be subject to explanatory constraints um, so that we can't simply help ourselves to assumptions um, which are somehow kind of immune to challenge from our best empirical science, which includes biology. Uh, and, and, you know, biochemistry as well as probably more than physics, actually. Um, Do you want to I explain why, then, it's Well, because I don't so. actually believe, I mean, the claim that everything, physicalism, the claim that, you know, ultimately all the science is reduced to physics, I think no one, I don't think scientists believe that. I don't think that anyone no, really believes not that. Any Eva, not yeah, anyone I know. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I think some philosophers, people. some philosophers believe that maybe in the middle of the 20th century. Um, but I think it's, you know, there are all sorts of problems about reducing, you know, one theory, you know, ab about reduction within a theory, let alone across theories. So, okay, so I think the claim that everything can ultimately be uh, described and explained in terms of the, the vocabulary of fundamental physics is, um, you know, incredible. Um, Okay, so th but then, nevertheless, I think, I th however, I resist the claim, which again, the, the proponents of the irreducibility of the mental often make, which is that there's something about, um, we have uh, about our own, the subjectivity of mind, you know, minded beings, there's a link between mentality and subjectivity, so that minds can only be truly known from the inside and not from the outside. Now, ironically, this often goes hand in hand 
with a claim that, you know, with these kind of anti-Cartesians, you want to dissolve the inside-outside boundary. So the, a lot of this anti-reductionist rhetoric, which is always railing against kind of physicalism and Cartesianism, nevertheless, it, it's, it's, it still kind of uh, seems to be wedded to the claim that uh, we have our relationship to our own experience is different from our relationship to um, other kind of phenomena, the phenomena that, you know, things that are not us. Um, and I think if you put pressure on that distinction, it always, I mean, if you consider a philosopher like Heidegger, the great critic of Cartesianism, and the great, you know, always, you know, kind of railing against representation, etc. His whole, when he's in his most famous book, Being in Time, he, he defines, you know, Dasein as that being which is in each case mine. But he gives no definition of mindness, propriety. What does it mean to be, you know, so he, he doesn't want to, to have any kind of Cartesian interiority uh, or subjectivity, but he still thinks that we have a kind of a bizarre proprietary relationship to our own experiences, such that the way in which we relate to uh, phenomena uh, as embodied beings is different from the way in which we relate, uh, the way in which we understand um, anything else in the, in the universe. So what about, Ava, the, this question of the subjective biologist trying to uh, assess the world beyond? I mean, is that how you, do you perceive I that there's that something the you're looking at that is distinct from you? in this question of consciousness. Well, first but of all... But you're also aware that you are a consciousness yourself, of course. Well, for me, the question of how is it that there are creatures that have something that I can call subjective experience, like I have, yes. is a very, very big question. It's an enigma that I want to try and solve. But do you feel their subjective experience is comparable to yours, that there's a sort of uniformity? I mean, when you say feeling... No, no, so I think... So the yeah. experience of others, is it... Are you expecting the same? Are you expecting it to be the same? I, you know, I think that uh, animals have feelings. They are not necessarily the same as mine. And I think that uh, it very much depends on the sensory apparatus of the animal and on the brain of the animal and many other things. So I don't know what it's like to be a bat. No. Right? But I do think that we can learn a little bit about how one may... We can get closer to understanding how bats feel. And I'll give you an example why I think that. Uh, there is a, a person who was, uh, Daniel Kish, who was born, uh, who was born blind, wh who was not born blind, he, he, he had retinoblastoma and his eyes had to be removed when he was 13 months old. Now this person has started uh, 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 distinguishing between things that are far from him through echolocation, right? He, he echolocates like a bat. That's why I say, that's why, what is it like to be a bat? Now, he, he's very good at it. He's so good at it, he's doing it by making clicking noises. He's so good at it that he can ride a bicycle in, in, in the mountains. He's, he's so good at it that he can identify a golf ball in, in a meadow. He's very, and he's teaching other people to use this technology. Now, this is a technology that is being developed. Now, people looked with fMRI into his brain and into the brain of somebody else who is doing that. And they saw that the visual areas are recruited for the auditory areas. So there is a very strange kind of thing. Now, we, d we, can't, we can learn, even people who are, uh, who, who are seeing, 
we can learn to echolocate if we uh, sort of do exercises for two weeks. Not very well, not as well as Daniel Kish, who started doing it at the age of two or three, but quite well in the end. So now we can start on... So I think that Daniel Kish understands a little bit better than most of us what is it like to bear bet. He doesn't understand fully because he doesn't have the bat body, he doesn't have the bat... He, he doesn't have he a bat brain bat and so suit. on. But no. there is something. So, uh, so there are lots of things that I don't know about the uh, inner worlds and inner feelings and subjective experiencing of others. But there is a hell of a lot I can learn about these things. That's the first thing. And I am interested in the general principles that make it possible for animals in the first place to do something very s interesting, such as feeling. And I think that it is not beyond the realm of science to understand this, I think, and I think we, uh, a lot of very good work in consciousness studies in neurobiology is helping us, and I, but I don't think we're there at all. I think there are lots and lots of questions. I think evolutionary biology will help us. This is a route that has not been taken and which I'm advocating very strongly. And I think, you know, with time we'll get very much better and hopefully we'll get to the point that we are now at with, the, uh, with the problem of life. We don't know how to manufacture life in the lab. It's not, I'm not saying that we can, but we do understand a lot about it. And it ceased to be such a big, like, mystery, you know, it's, 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 it's a hard problem, but not, not hard in the Chalmers sense. Right. It's a very <laughs> tough so problem, it? yes. but it's, 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 yeah. not, it's not a mystery. Theme three. I mean, Ava, then, it sounds like we're on to the third theme. Um, brilliantly, you've segued into it, which is the idea of a radical new model. And you're saying actually evolutionary theory yeah. can be this radical new model. Uh, Marcus, what's yeah. your well, well, what then, would you say you know, in like response? And um, what would you know, your like be? again, I would say that you know, like within the question, you know, the biological aspects of what we call consciousness, you know, that's a question which Eva can answer better than I. You know, like if she tells me evolutionary biology does the job, then you know, like I will believe her. But <laughs> uh, I think you know what we often forget is you know we ask <laughs> the bad question. I think Eva has basically said it's not a hard problem. Yeah, so the hard problem means, you know, uh, there's, as it were, a metaphysical gap. There's certainly not a metaphysical gap, I think, between us and the... I think there's a biological gap between us and bats. And given the plasticity of the brain and what we know about this, you know, like, to some extent, we can bridge this. I'm even happy to embrace that there's nothing conceptually incoherent about things like, I don't know if you know this great movie, Strange Days by Catherine Bigelow, you know, where, you know, actual you know, people's uh, conscious, conscious states, the feelings, etc., are completely recorded, and then you can watch them as it were with a new device and you really have the dinner they had you know but it's you you know it's like being John Malkovich but kind of better whatever so <laughs> I think that you know that's not that's not conceptually incoherent I don't think that ah you know uh, Descartes has told us you know I think no no that might be possible I'm happy with that but I think there are other questions that we tend to forget um, uh, first of all I don't think that the word science is restricted to what we call the natural sciences I think that literally science you know or sociology is often way better uh, of understanding consciousness and self-consciousness than any other discipline you know understanding say the history of uh, cooking of Italian cooking you know it's not sufficient to ask for you know how Italian taste buds evolved from the Romans <laughs> that is a, que a legitimate question yeah but there are other questions such as you know why uh, uh, why the pizza margarita the queen visited Naples blah 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 that's why you know it's red white and green like the flag you know that those are historical questions you know why do Italians keep for instance to the idea that uh, you always have to cook the same food you know local food has to stay the same for millennia whereas if you go to in for instance to Japan 
people will tell you, you know, like if I go to a restaurant and I already know the dish, why would I go to the restaurant? So it's, it's, it's a complete opposite uh, relation to taste. And I think uh, uh, no natural science can tell us anything about this because you need to know Japanese and Italian and the history of it, etc. So I think history and literary criticism and political science, etc. are as we call them in German, uh, uh, Geisteswissenschaften, that is sciences of Geist. Uh, so I, don't, I think that we tend to forget them if we say science. Uh, and I think that's, that's a major problem. But th because there are other gaps, you know, not just us and the bats, that's also the what is it like uh, to be a homeless person in Los Angeles or a Hindu in the suburb of Mumbai. I think those are really important questions and I think that we tend to repress these questions in the name of scientific progress because they are hard questions, you know. Uh, they are hard on a different level. If you start thinking about what other people experience, you know, then that is much tougher than, you know, bats. Yes. So even though oh. the bad <laughs> question is important, you know, but I think, the, you know, how homeless <laughs> people in the A feel is more important. But it's also a question about consciousness. But no natural science can deal with this question. Only to a certain extent, of course, you know. But, but you're uh, saying in a way with the Strange Days analogy, which is a great yeah. film, yes, um, that in a way through those sorts of scientific mm. developments you gain, I mean, potentially in that utopian notion yeah. or dystopian notion yeah. eventually, that you gain these intimations of other subjectivities. Is yeah. that where you're... And that's yeah, yeah, yeah. A, that's yeah, a heightened absolutely. sort of Absolutely. I don't see no problem with that. I don't think that subjectivity is something that I can only have. So I agree with a lot of what Ray has been saying about this. I don't think that there is such a thing as subjectivity if that means that I'm in a state that uh, only I can have. Like in this child game, I see something that you can see. Uh, you know, when I see something that you can see, you know, I can tell you what it is. So I don't think, as Wittgenstein once put it, that I have a beetle in my box. You know, it's not like there's a box, there's a beetle in it, but whenever you open it, the beetle disappears. So you can never s uh, tell anything about the beetle except me, because I am the beetle in my box. <laughs> I think that's, uh, you know, I think many people think about consciousness and subjectivity, etc., along those lines. Ownership, for instance, always enters the picture. Metaphors of ownership, you know, and in Heidegger, of course, Heidegger's anti-Cartesianism, as we all know, is just a standard Nazi uh, uh, topic of the time, you know, Descartes, uh, Western rationalism, blah, blah, also uh, Heidegger's uh, uh, Jewish teacher Husserl wrote Cartesian meditations, and as we now know from the Black Notebooks, Heidegger thought that Husserl could not understand him because, of course, he was a Jew, so, you know, the, the anti-Cartesianism in Heidegger is, uh, is, is way worse even than, you know, uh, uh, on uh, incoherent on the conceptual level, but that's another question. That's so another yeah. story. Yeah. Okay, Ray, well, I mean, so you've already, you've very cogently explained why you resist this whole idea that the one versus the other, mind versus matter. So presumably then, is it, is it going beyond these, these obsolete binaries into another way of trying to formulate these questions at least? Um, yes, but binaries are never obsolete. You can understand, you make progress by understanding the limitations of a distinction. You don't just abandon it, relinquish it as if, you know, as a kind of pointless kind of confusion. The point is to work, you know, this, these are hard-earned distinctions, but they are insufficient. So you need to, you make progress, not by liquidating every distinction, but by forging new distinctions that are adequate to the complexity of the phenomenon. And in this case, I think that the, you know, I, I think that, as, as Marcus was pointing out, that the, um, I think that the key to understanding human-mindedness, or mindedness in, in the sense in which humans are kind of particularly interested, is sociality. It's linked to sociality and culture. And, and I also think that, you know, Eva would, would agree, I think there's a, you, you can have a, the basic uh, a kind of a, a neurobiological mechanism that will equip you with, s with uh, sentience, that will allow you to kind of 
register somatic stimuli. Um, but then what seems to have happened in, uh, in our evolution is that because we are social beings, uh, the need to kind of uh, the need to communicate and the need to kind of you know to understand one another precipitated this you know this phase transition this this massive you know kind of uh, amplification of both sensory and conceptual complexity and I think so I think and I think in the next century if there's I, I, I'm also uh, a kind of a cautious optimist I think that progress can be made. But the progress lies in understanding the link between cultural evolution and biological evolution. That seems to be the crux, I think. Yeah. Um, okay, Ava, I'm afraid we've only got about two minutes before I throw it open to the audience. But what do you want to say about the next century and where we might be going? Yeah, in, in so I just want to make uh, clear that I don't think that, evolution, uh, that the evolutionary route of understanding consciousness is the only route. I think it is an important ingredient of the kind of research that must be done. I also 100% agree that if we want to understand the particular type of uh, uh, consciousness that humans have, we have to understand, to, to, to understand uh, the, the evolution of, of this particular type of uh, mind, whatever, <laughs> this particular type of system. And this can be done only when we consider uh, the co-evolution co of, uh, of the culture and the other, other biological systems, not, not only genes, also other systems like uh, epigenetics and stuff that I'm not going to talk about. So I, I agree, and I think that I agree with also with Marcus that um, it is pointless. If we, there, are, there, there are certain kinds of phenomena that if we want to understand them at a level that is uh, interesting for us, it is not necessary for us to go to molecular biology. If we want to understand, uh, yeah, we, 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 we if we want, want to understand the, the cul culinary culture of the of the Italians, we go to history and sociology, and uh, and individual psychology and things like that. And usually, this will be quite enough. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented... They'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.